Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. We've had 35 resurrections of the dead. The closer they are to freshly dead, the easier they are to resurrect. So I see this giant angel and I asked him his name. It's a financial company. And I realized this angel is here for our finances. And that's a true literal story, by the way. These people are charlatans. And it's about time we draw a line in the sand and stop fraternizing with the wolves. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Let's go talk about the book we all read. So little time because the opening is so long. This is Wretched Radio. Let's talk about your brain or perhaps the brain of your children because there is a distinction between an adult brain and a child's brain, which isn't fully formed until the age of 25. You say, Friel. What does brain science have to do with my Christian walk? Answer, a lot. Question, do you have difficulty memorizing Bible verses? Do you find it challenging to listen to a longer sermon? Do you sometimes struggle to finish a chapter of that book you've been wanting to read now for years? Maybe, just maybe, there's a connection to social media, the book that I read. And when I say I read it, Mrs. Friel read it, marked it up, and then I spent time interacting with her markings up. Now you say, but then you didn't read the book that you're talking about. And the opening, which was exceedingly long, was in vain and inaccurate. That is not true. Genesis 1, we are one flesh. If she read the book, I read the book. So there. Oh, come on. This This book is called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. I don't believe that he's a professing Christian. And we do, of course, need to bring our Christian thinking into a discussion about the brain. Why? While psychology doesn't do this, they have a tendency to use as, as if they're synonyms, the mind and the brain. In Christianity, there's a distinction. The brain is that gray matter, but that's not you. That is an organ just like your kidneys. Your brain, I always like to say, and I check this with Dr. Greg Gifford, who's writing a book on the distinction between the mind and the brain. The brain, that organism that goes... <laughs> That thing is the connector between you, your mind, and the physical world. But you're not your brain. Having said that, we do need to recognize that the brain is an organ that responds to stimuli. So with that distinction in mind, let us learn from this fellow who wrote a book on our brains in 2011 because he had a concern that long ago that our brains are being rewired, that our brains are being forced because of electronic media. And this was 2011, mind you. So that most people, sociologists agree, 2012 is about the time that the iPhone kicked in gear, but we were already using computers and there was already enough work being done to identify what electronics does to our brain. I think you're going to appreciate this trip through time. Mention this perhaps a number of months ago while I was still reading this book. Genesis 1! <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's a 2. 
<laughs> Shame on me. <laughs> I, I can't even proof text rightly. This is from The Shallows by one Nicholas Carr. This is this is a bit of a story. Let me take you back in time. And I have been told that this is also bad radio. You shouldn't read this much. But I think it's helpful enough and intriguing enough to understand how our brains as human beings have formed over the centuries. And you say, well, where are we going with this? It's to bring us up to this century to say these are the ways that our brains are being rewired versus the printed word. He goes to great lengths to explain the differences between consuming information via electronics versus a book. And this guy digs down deep. It is a good work. He even talks about the the textile nature of books, the page turning, and how our brains interact with it, and what parts of our brain even respond to it, and why his conclusion ultimately is books makes you smarterer than social media and electronics. Let's go back in time, shall we? He writes, as we go through this process of intellectual maturation, we're also acting out the entire history of map making. So he's talking about how our brains get formed. Please note, when you're under 25, this could really have some serious implications. Because your brain can get wired in a less than optimal way. When you're 25, social media still has an impact on you. There's no question. But I think it's safe to say, and I don't recall him saying this in the book, it has a greater impact on those under the age of 25 because your brain is still maturing. Mankind's first maps, M-A-P-S, what, minor, this is not minor attracted persons. Wow! How the times have changed. This is actual, you know, like maps. Honey, where are we going? Maps. The history of maps. Scratched in the dirt with a stick or carved into a stone with another stone were as rudimentary as the scribblers of scribbles of toddlers. Eventually, the drawings became more realistic, outlining the actual proportions of a space. A space that extended well beyond what could be seen with the eye. You and I engage with maps all the time. That's actually a, a brain skill that is a learned skill, what it represents, what it symbolizes. You don't sit there and go, okay, well, that line is the border, and that makes it look like the topography might have mountains. No, you just you engage with it because your brain is trained to do so. The drawings became more realistic. As more time passed, the realism became scientific in its precision and abstraction. The mapmaker began to use sophisticated tools like the direction-finding compass and the angle-measuring theodolite and to rely on mathematical reckonings and formulas. Eventually, in a further intellectual leap, maps came to be used not only to represent vast regions of the earth, or heavens in minute detail, but to express ideas. What do we use maps for? Plans of battle, an analysis of the spread of an epidemic, a forecast of population growth, the intellectual process of transforming experience in space to abstraction of space is a revolution in modes of thinking. 
And so maps started to teach our brains how to consume abstract information. And it and it caused us to think a certain way. What the map did for space, which was translate a natural phenomenon into an artificial and intellectual conception of that phenomenon, another technology, the mechanical clock, did for time. For most of history, we experienced time as a continuous, cyclical flow to the extent that time was kept. The keeping was done by instruments that emphasized the natural process, sundials, shadows, hourglasses with sand. There was no particular need to measure time with precision or to break a day up into little pieces. For most folks, the movements of the sun, the moon, the stars, that was the only clock that they needed. Life was, in the words of the French medial, medi, medievalist Jacques Legault, dominated by agrarian rhythms, free of haste, careless of exactitude, unconcerned by productivity. But as clocks became more sophisticated in the latter half of the Middle Ages, the first people to demand a more precise measurement of time were Christian monks, Catholic monks, who, whose lives revolved around a rigorous schedule of prayer. Sixth century, St. Benedict ordered his followers to hold seven prayer services at specified times during the day. Hey, that must be the Benedict option that Rod Dreher, is it Rod Dreher, Russ Duthat, one of those guys, the writers for the New York Times, who's Eastern Orthodox, wants us to exercise. Which one is it, Jimmy? Yes. Oh, thank you. <laughs> 600 years later, the Cistercians gave new emphasis to punctuality, dividing the day into a regimented segment sequence of activities. And tardiness was a waste of time. It was an affront to God. Spurred by the need for temporal exactitude, monks took the lead in pushing forward the technologies of timekeeping. And so this particular book called The Shallows then dives even deeper into the evolution, micro evolution, guided process evolution of the clock. Now you've got it on your wrist. Now you got it on your phone. And you say, I'm not tracking this. This is your brain learning how to process information, abstract ideas, how to concentrate, how to memorize, how to use logic and reason. His case is being built that the, the wonderful contributions to our society, like maps and clocks, they've also been training our brains to think in a certain way. And so too have books how we have to concentrate and think and interact tactilely and visually, but not with sound and not with other stimuli that it comes from electronic media, which causes the brain to operate differently. And the potential impact on you and your kids, it is massive. Next on Ratchet Radio. 
Like the Pointer Sisters, I am so excited and I just can't hide it. The Masters Academy International is embarking on a bold new program to distribute Bibles internationally. There are oh so many wretched people who love to give to ministries who are giving out Bibles. And the Masters Academy International is going to start doing just that in the Philippines. But they don't want to give out just any Bible to just anybody. They're going to give away John MacArthur Study Bibles to Christians who cannot afford them in a local Bible teaching church. Can you imagine the impact? How much do you love your MacArthur Study Bible? For $25, you could put a Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines. I'll do the math. It's not tricky. Four Bibles, $100. Maybe you could commit to giving a Bible a month to a believer in the Philippines. Please visit wretched.org Bible, wretched.org Bible to join the Master's Academy International. You know, what used to be a movie is now a sad reality. We're living in a world that's gone absolutely bonkers. So much so that six mads just aren't enough to describe it. Social media may be bombarding us left and right. Our Christian worldview may be under assault. But we have the dynamic duo of Todd Friel and Dr. Nathan Buznitz. And they're coming to the rescue with Wretched Worldview 2. Tackling 22 of those pesky, thorny, contemporary issues through a biblical lens, helping us to defend the biblical view on things like sexuality and gender, critical race theory, modesty and apparel, persecution, secular entertainment, environmentalism, 22 issues to be exact. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to wretched.org, grab your copy of Wretched Worldview 2. And hey, while you're there, snag that study guide too, because it's the perfect companion for navigating this mad, 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 mad world with wisdom and grace. How's inflation been treating you if costs for health insurance are skyrocketing in your home? Would you please visit MediShare.com slash wretched. Affordable biblical health sharing. Christians paying for other Christians' medical bills, which means you don't have to worry where the money is going for mm, bad stuff. Second of all, you can save on average $500 per month. And finally, MediShare, it's the gold standard for healthcare sharing for more than 25 years. It works. And the members, including myself and Mrs. Friel, Love it, which is why their customer satisfaction rate is double traditional health insurance. If inflation has got you down, call up the people at MediShare, 844-34-BIBLE or MediShare.com slash wretched. Important dates in Christian history. 590 A.D. Gregory becomes Pope Gregory I, known as the Great. He made treaties with Germanic tribes, independent of the emperor, and declared the Bishop of Rome's primacy over the whole church, increasing the political and spiritual power of the papacy significantly. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. How's your brain being wired? This is Wretched Radio. Nicholas Carr, over a decade ago, writing The Shallows. It's a New York Times bestseller, tracking the history of the formation of the brain, how we consume information, think, ponder, consider, weigh, dare I say, meditate. Let me take you to the book. The map and the clock changed language indirectly 
by suggesting new metaphors to describe natural phenomenon. So we have a clock that represents something that is a passing of time, which, by the way, a passing of time is only marked by a clock. But the point is we're starting to think, how do we understand the world through maps and through clocks? Other intellectual technologies change language more directly, more deeply. They alter the way that we speak, listen, read, write. That's why this is important to get a grasp on. And that is why I'm taking the time to violate a radio rule, which is reading too much from a book. Because we've heard it, haven't we? Technology, it's really bad for you. And the kids, oh, they can't concentrate. We better understand this is actually quite profound. And it has implications in our walk and our ability to read our Bibles, perhaps most specifically. Back to the book, if you don't mind. These new technologies might enlarge or compress our vocabulary, modify the norms of diction or word order, or encourage either simpler or more complex syntax. In other words, technologies, they affect the way that we think. As the classical scholar Walter J. Ung put it, technologies are not mere exterior aids. That's what we were told, right? Computers, technology, it's your assistant. It helps you. But they're more than that. They cause interior transformation of consciousness and never more than when they affect the word. The history of language is a history of the mind. You and I, because of technology, think different than people 50 years ago without it. And guess what? They perhaps thought differently than people 150 years. As we continue to make different technological advancements, our brains learn how to process stuff differently. Early in the 4th century, when the practice of writing was still novel, controversial in Greece, Plato wrote Phaedrus, dialogue about love, beauty, rhetoric. In the tale, the title character, a citizen of Athens, takes a walk with the great orator Socrates into the countryside, where the two friends sit under a tree beside a stream and have a long, circuitous conversation. Finer points of speech-making, the nature of desire, varieties of madness, the journey of the immortal soul, and then they turn their attention to the written word. There remains the question, muses Socrates, of propriety and impropriety in writing. Phaedrus agrees, and Socrates launches into a story about a meeting between the multi-talented Egyptian god Thoth, T-H-E-U-T-H, whose many inventions included the alphabet, and a king of Egypt named Thamus. This is worth tracking this story. Theuth, the god, describes the art of writing to the king Thamus, and argues that the Egyptians should be allowed to share in its blessings, saying it will make the people of Egypt wiser and improve their memories, for it provides a recipe for memory and wisdom. Thamus, the king, disagrees. He reminds the god that an inventor is not the most reliable judge of the value of his invention. Quote, O man full of arts, to one it is given to create the things of art, and to another to judge what measure of harm and of profit that they have for those who shall employ them. And so it is that you, by reason of the tender regard for the writing that is your offspring, have declared the very opposite of its true effect. 
it will writing will implant forgetfulness in their souls. They will cease to exercise memory because they rely on that which is written. Fascinating. We need to remember that things have been introduced in time and people had to respond to them. And in the past, we took more time than we do today. We're of the mindset in this, well, it's still an industrial, technological, scientific era. If man has invented it, let's rock. Let's do this. Employ it because, well, it'll improve human flourishing. In the old days, they used to stop and say, wait a second. How will this affect us? And what is being presented in this conversation that's with Socrates is, is that when the written word was introduced, some people stopped and went, wait a second, if they can write things down, then they don't have to remember that. And that's going to do what? Affect their brains and the capacity to remember and to memorize. Now, ask yourself the question, what do we think social media is doing to the brain? Nothing. If we, if we struggle to remember things in the past when we had to write it down, now we don't even do that. Why? Because it's written down for us. So if I want to go find out, for instance, that it was Rod Dreher yeah. who wrote the Benedict Option, yeah. I don't need to remember it. Because if I forget it, no big whoop, who wrote the Benedict Option? Or if I forget the Benedict option, what did Rod Dreher write? Whatever. What's the book about how Christians should react in the 21st century? I don't need to remember it. I just need to know how to Google it. It's going to do something to the brain. We used to ask those questions. And one of the, I have to confess, one of the ulterior motives that I have for bringing this up, and I don't envy you, mom and dad, your kids are using the social media unprecedented levels. We can't be naive and think it does nothing to them. It is affecting them. In fact, because we've now seen that heavy social media use for over a decade, isn't it fair to say, hey, we should at least consider the connection between behavior, emotions, moods, and social media and its effects? If we, if we, if we aren't persuaded that maps, clocks, alphabet, language, writing, books, telegraph, telephone, and social media affect the way that we process and think. Uh, I, I don't think we're being smart, which is another one of the effects of social media. According to this book from Nicholas Carr, you don't get smarter. You actually get a lot dumber. Are we maybe letting our kids consume too much of this? From the book, as our ancestors imbued their minds with the discipline to follow a line of argument or narrative through a succession of printed pages, they became more contemplative, reflective, and imaginative. New thought came more readily to a brain that had already learned to rearrange itself to read. The increasingly sophisticated intellectual skills promoted by reading and writing added to our intellectual repertoire. The quiet of deep reading became part of the mind. How you think the world of the screen, as we are now fully coming to understand, is a very different place from the world of the page. A new intellectual ethic is taking hold. The pathways in our brains are once again being rerouted. 
Implications? Huge. One of the fascinating components or parts of this book was not only what social media is doing to us, but what it's it's causing us to not do. It causes us to not be bored, to not think. When was the, honestly, when was the last time any of us have taken much time to think something through? When, be, oh, sorry. I, I'm done thinking that thought. I got a text. Oh, look at that. Somebody's real. Oh, funny story. Oh, look at what Joe Biden did. Boing, boing. boing. And you, you don't think deeply. And one of the problems with these distractions is it sets you back. So you spend a minute thinking, which is a long time these days. You get a text, takes you back about two minutes. And you got to get it ramped back up again, as opposed to being able to sit and think without distraction. Consider the statistics that we are all fully aware of these days. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, suicidal ideations, not knowing how to do what they call adulting being stuck in a more juvenile state than doing more mature things? Could it be that part of the reason for those less than helpful advancements is because of electronic media? Consider all the time that could be spent reading a good book, reading a theological treatise, reading the Bible, if there weren't social media. What are the kids doing? Seven, eight hours? How many hours? I see my phone and I'm like, no, I don't. There's no way because I I use it to check email, basically, is what I use it for. And I will admit, sometimes a good dog rescue video can get me. Maybe some unearthed footage of Elvis at Madison Square Garden in 1972. Other than that, I look at it and I go, you're kidding me. I spent two hours a day on this stupid phone. What could I have done? I don't know. Prayed more? The implications of social media are huge. Mom and dad, for yourself, for your kids. Please, I don't know what it is. Sorry. You really should have a strategy. This is Wretched Radio. Books of the Bible. Esther is the story of a Jewish woman who becomes Queen of Persia. After a plot to destroy the Jews is uncovered, Esther risks her life to save her people. She appeals to the king who kills the conspirators and allows the Jews to defend themselves. When you face persecution, remember God is able to save his people through all kinds of circumstances. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Don't worry about bringing a Bible to church. You have your cell phone this is wretched radio that perennial debate is brought into a new light courtesy of a book written by one nicholas carr called the shallows from 2011 he dives into the difference between the written word on a page and the written word in pixels and he makes a profound case there is a vast difference how many times have you perhaps had this conversation you know I just like books. I just, I just, there's something about them. I like cracking them open, hearing the binding go for the first time. Although there are some of us, I'm not suggesting myself, that don't actually like to break the binding. I would rather have to like crane my neck into the page to not have the binding go. But some of us love books. There's something about them. 
that that we just like better than reading it on a screen. And Nicholas Carr makes the case there can be a reason for that because there is a difference to his book. A page of online text viewed through a computer screen may seem similar to a page of printed text, but scrolling or clicking through a web document involves physical actions and sensory stimuli different from those involved in holding and turning the pages of a book or magazine. Research has shown that the cognitive act of reading draws not just on our sense of sight, but on our sense of touch. It's tactile as well as visual. A crucial link between the sensory motor experience of the materiality of a written work and the cognitive processing of the text content. So in other words, the, the delivery mechanism is interpreted differently by your brain and it forms your brain differently. The question then, of course, is which one has more value? And what you will hear repeatedly in this book is that the printed word has so many benefits. It is just better for your brain. It is better for memory. It is better for processing. They did an experiment. It was a lengthy one where... People in the in the scientific experiment, as scientific as these things can be, they were to solve a puzzle problem. One had a really high-speed supersonic sort of software. The others had a glitchy one. And they both ultimately solved the problem. But then two months later, they brought back the group that that had the glitchy software. They were able to solve the problems without the software at all. The other group couldn't even figure out how to solve the puzzle problem. Why? Because your brain gets trained to interpret and your brain gets trained to either be spectacularly productive or incredibly lazy. Back to the book from Nicholas Carr. The searchability of online works represents a variation on older navigational age Aids such as table of context, indexes, and concordances. The effects are different. The, he describes that when you look at a computer, have you done this? I see this with myself. I see it with people all the time. And I will say, especially with people who are younger, they will through a page of information like, whoa, what was that all about? They just, and they zip through it. And the thinking is, I got it. I've looked at it. I've consumed it. And they, they have hardly scanned it. And the way that the eye works, and I found myself doing this too. The way that the eye works, you're in, I just find social media. It's just, I got I to gotta hurry up. and the, the whole thing about social media and AI is quick, 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 quick. I, I need this fast compared to reading a book. You ain't doing that fast, even if you're a speed reader. The eye does an F shape. It has a tendency to look across twice and then scroll down, look across twice, scroll down, look across twice, scroll down. That's how we consume electronic media. And guess what? It's doing something to our brain. We are thinking far less deeply. The ease and ready availability of searching make it simpler to jump between digital documents than it ever was to jump between printed ones. Our attachment to any one text becomes more tenuous. Searches also lead to the fragmentation of online works. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I, I, I can't speak for you. I want to look up um, 
uh, t- I was, what was I looking for the other day? It was, some, it was something theological. And I, and I typed in the words, I burned through the Google search. Like, up, oh, not there. What? And my mind starts to adapt to that. A search engine often draws our attention to a particular snippet of text, a few words or sentences that we think have relevance, while providing little incentive for taking in the work as a whole. We don't see the forest when we search the web. We don't even see the trees. We see twigs and leaves. In other words, there's a difference because our brains, remember, that's not who you are. Your brain actually takes on a shape. One thing is clear, if knowing that what we know today about the brain's plasticity, you were to set out to invent, if you were to set out a medium that would rewire our mental circuits as quickly and thoroughly as possible, you'd probably design something that looks a whole lot like the internet because it does. And mom and dad, we can't ignore this for ourselves or for our kids. Your, your your kids are are growing up with their brains consuming more of this. And I'll even go a step further. If they're doing their homework on a computer, oh, come on, quit being a Luddite. Well, I'm just telling you, it changes the way they process information. It's not pondered. It's not considered. It's not even memorized, which is another magnificent section of this book. It gets into our lack of ability to memorize what we once used to find no difficulty doing. I remember I've, I've learned pages of monologue from Shakespeare. In fact, if I tried, I could probably muddle through one right now. When did I learn that? When I was a kid. That was long before. We didn't have computers back then. And so I could, I'm not bragging on this because believe me, it's so diminished today. I could sit and look at a paragraph of Shakespeare in Shakespearean language. And I could pretty soon, yeah, I got that. Uh Huh? And today, I'm telling you, I am still working on Titus 3, 1 through 7. I <laughs> and yet back then, and you could, you could simply put it in a shoebox called age. Well, your brain isn't as good. No, I don't know that my brain is somehow shrunk, but could it be that my brain has become rewired? And I'm not a big social media user. I do, but I'm not like buried in it all the time. I print out stuff. I can't read articles. I can't, I can't read books online. I just can't do it. I, maybe you dig that. I get that. But you need to know what it's doing to you. It has an effect. There are implications. And memorization is one of them. Let's dive into this book from Stephen Carr so that we can see, uh-oh, our brains, they's being messed with. The popularity of commonplace books ebbed as the pace of life quickened in the 19th century. And by the middle of the 20th century, memorization itself had begun to fall from favor. Progressive educators banished the practice from classrooms, dismissing it as a vestige of a less enlightened time. What had long been viewed as a stimulus for personal insight and creativity came to be seen as a barrier to imagination and then simply a waste of mental energy. 
we've seen this in history. Memorization used to be like, whoa, that guy knows so much. Now we write it down. We've got post-it notes. Then it advanced to, it's all stored in Google. I got a calendar. I don't need to think of it. It'll, it'll alert me. I don't even need to look at it. It'll just tell me what I'm supposed to do. And our memory is increasingly diminished. With our more or less permanent connections to the internet, it's no longer terribly efficient to use our brains to store information. Memory should now function like a simple index, pointing us to places on the web to locate information we need now. Why memorize the content of a book when you could be using your brain to hold a quick guide to an entire library, which is what we have in our cell phones, isn't it? Rather than memorize information, we store it digitally and just remember where it's stored. The web teaches us to think like it does with rather little deep knowledge. The technology, a technology writer said, now that we can look up anything with a click on Google, memorizing long passages of historical facts or the Bible is obsolete. Memorization is a waste of time because it can be outsourced. For the ancient Greeks, memory was a goddess, the mother of the muses to Augustine or Augustine if you're in Florida. It was a vast and infinite profundity, a reflection of the power of God in man. The classical view remained about memorization, the common view through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment up to the 19th century. 1892, that seems to be the year it changed when the art of thinking went bye-bye. Today, some people don't even know what it means to memorize something. How's your brain being wired? This is Wretched Radio. Busy, busy, busy. Last year, Preborn Ministries provided over 92,000 ultrasounds, 54,000 babies were saved, 69 ultrasound machines were placed, 10,000 people responded to the gospel. Preborn Ministries, very busy, saving babies, saving souls. Would you please consider partnering with Preborn Ministries? $28 per ultrasound, five ultrasounds, $140. Yes, they are expensive, but they save lives. And Preborn Ministries uses good equipment with trained specialists, which is why the success rates are so staggeringly high at saving lives with preborn. Please consider supporting preborn at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. Hey, thank you so much for tuning in to Wretched Radio today. It's truly amazing to see how much support we get from people like you who generously allow us to spread the gospel and reach millions of people all over the world. You're a vital part of this ministry, and we want you to know just how much we appreciate you. Our mission is to preach the gospel, equip people to preach the gospel, and strengthen the local church. But we can't do it without the help of our gospel partners. 
and to ensure that we're accountable to our gospel partners, we're members of the ECFA and undergo an audit every single year. We promise not a penny goes to frivolous waste. We honor your generous gifts with faithful stewardship and full accountability. If you're not already a gospel partner, would you prayerfully consider becoming one? All of the answers to the questions you could possibly have can be found at wretched.org slash donate. Wretched.org slash donate. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa and the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Titles of Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called the friend of sinners. While we were dead in our sins and condemned as enemies, Jesus bore our sins in himself so we could be reconciled to the Father. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Thus have I politically begun my reign, and tis my hope to end successful. My falcon now is sharp, passing empty. Until she stoops, she must not be full gorged for thus i shall tame her headstrong humor Cut. another way i have to make her come and know her keeper's call that Cut. bait and beat and will not be obedient she eat no meat to would you please actually interrupt soon i'm trying to get you i don't know how much more of this i got this is wretched <laughs> radio i haven't visited that soliloquy for decades but it's there and i'm asking the question <laughs> Well, how did it get in there and how has it stayed there for so long? How in the world can I memorize William Shakespeare from decades ago, still regurgitate it, and yet I struggle to memorize a Bible verse? I'm telling you, something is different and it's not just age. You could put me in a room for eight months to memorize Shakespeare today and I would come out going, two, two, uh. A, B, to be the thing that you're kind of supposed to be is the thing that is. Put me in there for three years and I might be able to come out going to be our something. Why? Is it possible my brain has been rewired? So is yours. And as we speak, our children's brains are being diminished in their capacity and their ability to memorize and to think and be creative. Quote from a book by Nicholas Carr called The Shadows. The net's cacophony of stimuli short circus both conscious and unconscious thought, preventing our minds from thinking either deeply or creatively. Our brains turn into simple processing units, just shepherding the information 
spewing it out, forgetting about it because it's stored in the palm of my hand. Our brains are being rewired. And we are not the creative people, the memorizing people, the thinking people that we once were. And you say, well, so what? What We're doing just fine. Hold on. God doesn't consult Google. We're, we're, we're supposed to be like him. Can we use these tools to aid us? Of course we can. But if they push out the things and the devices that help us to have our brains thinking and processing more like God, we might have to take a look at social media and say, uh, it's time to put the kibosh on it because we're spending so much time on it. This is from the book. What we're not doing when we're online also has neurological consequences. Just as neurons that fire together wire together, neurons that don't fire together don't wire together. The time we spend scanning web pages crowds out the time we spend reading books and taking a look at texts, verses, composing sentences and paragraphs. Your brain isn't being exercised rightly. It, 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 it's, it's like those ads on TV. Oh, sure, they hire somebody to look buff who actually lifts weights, but then those little trapeze things that they've got don't do much for you. And that's the same thing with the internet. Yeah, it, it appears to be knowledge. It appears to be helpful. But what's it doing to us? And what will creativity look like in 20 years? What will, what will, what big, deep thoughts will be advanced? What books will be written? What movies will be produced? Could it be that we are literally shooting ourselves in the foot because we are not putting the brakes on anything regarding social media. Back to the book from one Nicholas Carr in an article published 2009 in a journal called Science. A psychologist from UCLA reviewed more than 50 studies of the effects of different types of media on people's intelligence and learning ability, concluding, quote, every medium develops some cognitive skills at the expense of others. Our growing use of the net and other screen-based technology has led to the widespread and sophisticated development of visual spatial skills. So they take a look at the brain when you're looking at your cell phone and the part of your brain that does your visual spatial. Like just, you know, how far away are you? You're in my zone. How fast is that pitch coming in? That's a particular area of your brain. It's getting better because of the internet, because of social media. But what isn't it exercising? That part of the brain that thinks deeply. Could this be a contributor to what we're seeing with the statistics of depression, anxiety, loneliness? Because we've we've got our brains on. Got to be this. And you're not taking the time to do the work required to stop listening to the firings in your brain and start speaking to them, getting them under control, exercising the brain to develop patterns and habits that become a part of who you are because of social media. Back to the study, our growing use of the net has led to the widespread development of visual spatial skills rotating objects in our minds, but our new strengths in visual spatial intelligence go hand in hand with a weakening of our capacities for the kind of deep processing that underpins mindful knowledge acquisition. 
inductive analysis, critical thinking, imagination, and reflection. The net making us smarter only if we define intelligence by the net's own standards. But if you take a broader and more traditional view of intelligence, if we think about the depth of our thought rather than just its speed, we have come, we have to come to a different and considerably darker conclusion. My encouragement, you got to come up with a strategy. If we're to be the master over creation, if the things are here to serve us, I think we would all do well to say this little device that I'm holding in my hand right now, it is not going to be my master. It's going to serve me. And if I don't have a strategy and I don't have a plan, I'm in big trouble. I would like to challenge you to come up with that plan for you and for your children. I would also especially perhaps like to challenge you if you are young. Here, it maybe feels like water to a fish, but the internet and social media, it's perhaps stunting you. It's perhaps keeping you from doing that thing that seems to be so elusive to so many today, and that is adulting that you need to put the thing down more, that maybe you need to get a flip phone, and that maybe you need to start thinking and memorizing Scripture. It's more important than Shakespeare, most certainly taming of the shrew. Challenge number two. Let me take you to the very end of this book by Nicholas Carr, talking about a little challenge to maybe convince you that, you know what, maybe some of the old ways are better that maybe there's a reason God wrote the printed word on pages because that's the best way for us to consume it. And maybe when Jesus went away for seasons and times to pray, it was, it was a quiet time that calmed down the brain. The man Jesus, of course. Maybe we need to do that too. A series of psychological studies over the past 20 years has revealed that after spending time in a quiet rural setting, close to nature, people exhibit greater attentiveness, stronger memory, and generally improved cognition. Whoa. You ever done that? You finally get everything done for work so that you can take a break and you decompress. And especially if you go into the mountains, you go out into the fields, if you're in Minnesota, Nebraska, Iowa, you'd, you, what do we go to up there? There's no mountain. It's like, a, it's like Florida up there. You could land a plane in the entire Midwest. You get away from it. <sighs> and maybe things start to come clearer to you. How's about this cliche? Why don't you just sleep on it? And isn't it funny how many times you let your brain just process a little, calm down, you're able to come up with a strategy that's actually productive? Is it possible we might all do well to find a way to decompress our brains? When people go out into rural settings, their brains become both calmer and sharper. According to attention restoration theory, that's ART, is that when People aren't being bombarded by external stimuli. Their brains can, in effect, relax. They no longer have to tax their working memories by processing a stream of bottom-up distractions. The resulting state of contemplativeness strengthens their ability to control their mind. 
Don't know why of all of the Puritans that I've read, I recall, can't think, remember the, ah, uh, might have been Newton, John Newton, who encouraged a pastor who's having fainting fits. Ah, just the pressure of everything. Go for a walk. Go out into the woods. See God's creative hand. Maybe also let your brain decompress. And then maybe when it's rested, rather than returning to the mechanism and device that actually contributed to the stress and the burnout, that we consider taking a different path. Yours might be a little different than mine, but maybe the printed word, maybe slowing down, maybe not being bombarded by so much, so fast, maybe memorizing, handwriting a letter might actually be good for us because it helps us to become more like God. Until tomorrow, go serve your kingdom.